Hey there, I'm Christopher Schoenwald, and welcome to Life As A, a show intently focused on helping people find their professional pathway by exploring and unearthing the details of jobs from around the world. Hey, how are you doing? Before we get started today, I do have a favor to ask of all of you. I did start a channel over on YouTube in the last year, year and a half or so, And yeah, I'm really trying to promote that. And the reason being is I think the content that I'm putting out here, you know, we're doing all right with some of these guests for coming on. And I think it deserves to be put in front of more people. And one of the best ways, of course, of doing that is through a platform like YouTube. Now, if you do interact with these videos on YouTube, that algorithm loves it. And that's the only way that it knows to continually share that content, put it in front of more people. So yeah, I could be a little bit biased here, but I think, you know, finding out about some of these careers is great for young people. It's great for mid-career professionals. So yeah, like, subscribe, it would help a ton. All right, well, let's get into this episode today. I'd like to start today's episode by asking a question. When you think of an academic scholar, what's the first thing that comes to mind? You know, it might be of this distinguished individual tucked away in some office deep into their own research or going over the latest research findings in their particular area of study, or maybe it's of them teaching, and maybe the thoughts and imagery end there. Well, this conversation today is going to solve some of those issues for you. We're going to give you a lot more to chew on when it comes to considering you know, this profession as a possibility. We're lucky enough today to have this great guest. Her name is Dr. Ingrid Handelovsky, and she's a professor from the University of Victoria, and she breaks down what the profession is all about. We get into some of the distinctions within scholarly work, whether it's being a research stream academic, whether it's having a focus on teaching, and we hear about a lot of the different roles and responsibilities by way of a day in the life chat. We even get a look at her own pathway into the world of scholarly research. We also learn a little bit about her research, you know, the meaningfulness of that work. And even we find out about some of the crossover between the professional and personal. Plus, we even get into, you know, some of the hidden aspects of the work, you know, funding. We also have a look at technology and how that's affecting the profession as well. So all up, we cover a lot of ground in this conversation, and I'm sure you're really going to enjoy it. So let me more formally introduce our guest to you, and we can get started. Dr. Ingrid Hindlovsky is a professor at the University of Victoria, Vancouver, British Columbia, who studies how social environments can affect people's health. Not only that, she is involved with the advocating for recognition of interpersonal and structural discrimination as a determinant of health. Now, rewinding a bit, Ingrid got started in education and research while studying at McMaster University, where she completed an undergraduate thesis in psychomotor control. She later completed a fast-track nursing program at the University of Toronto and worked briefly in oncology before moving to outreach community mental health and substance use in Vancouver's downtown east side. While working as a nurse, Ingrid became passionate about helping people who face disadvantages due to inherent social structures that are not positioned to truly assist. 
this letter to complete a master's and PhD in nursing at the University of British Columbia. Her research now looks at issues of health equity and how social environments, including historical and political factors, can impact people's health outcomes. Ingrid's work focuses on advocating for equity and social justice, and she works with LGBTQ2S plus individuals and groups to learn from their experiences of resiliency. Her doctoral dissertation specifically focused on enhancing equity with gender and sexual identity, and she was supported by several research fellowships. So with all of this noted, here's my conversation with Dr. Ingrid Handelovsky. Yeah, hey, welcome to the program. How are you doing today, Ingrid? I am doing well. Yourself? Yeah, excellent. Really good. Really good. I'm excited for this talk for a number of different reasons. And I do have this first segment lined up. It's something called Coloring Wikipedia. As my listeners know, it's a segment where I just read off a definition of what the guest does. And uh, you know, I do it for a couple of reasons. One, to kind of add some zest to these definitions from Wikipedia. And then also, too, I, I like it because it gives a different perspective on the profession or the area that you know, the guest is involved within. So I do have you down here for a broad, broad concept here, scholar. And I'm going to read that off. Afterwards, maybe you can share your thoughts. Does that sound all right? Sounds fantastic. Okay, here we go. So scholar. A scholar is a person who is a researcher or has expertise in an academic discipline. A scholar can also be an academic who works as a professor, teacher, or researcher at a university. An academic usually holds an advanced degree or a terminal degree, such as a master's degree or a doctorate PhD. Scholars may rely on the scholarly method or scholarship, a body of principles and practices used by scholars to make their claims about the world as valid and trustworthy as possible, and to make them known to the scholarly public. It is the methods that systematically advance the teaching, research, and practice of a given scholarly or academic field of study through rigorous inquiry. First take, what do you think of that? There's a lot of scholar there. Yeah, Yeah, there is a lot of. I thought the same thing. There's a lot of reiteration of scholar and emphasis on scholar. There's a few words that, uh, as an academic, are you know you kind of chuckle internally because they are words that are prone to inciting some uh, very interesting deliberations and discussion. What constitutes rigor? What constitutes trustworthiness? These are things that we yeah. literally debate and write papers about. So it is. Uh, a you know a perspective right it is a an idea that's written from a particular lens which is really interesting because then as somebody who likes critical theory we can consider uh you know the voices are privileged there or who's really being heard or what sort of so I could just go down about 15 different garden paths here and I'll stop myself <laughs> but I do believe that that uh, there's a lot of uh, if you really kind of boil it down I think there's a lot of relevance to what's being stated there in terms of what a scholar is if you asked me about a scholar, I would envision this very serious looking person sitting in the armchair with one of those jackets with the patches, smoking a pipe, uh, considering deeply philosophical things. And I suppose to some degree, that's what scholars do. The core of that, and as my colleague and friend shared with me, our job is to come up with ideas. And I love that because often our idea is not successful. We're, you know, continually attempting to get funding for things. And oftentimes we are not successful and that can be really devastating. But at the end of the day, it's about coming up with those ideas. It's about maintaining that curiosity and engaging with the world and asking questions. 
And I think that 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 definition there really captured, like these are folks that are really interested in exploring questions, in understanding more about the world around us. And that's really what our work focuses on and how that manifests. There's, as uh, I know we had kind of talked briefly about this, but there's a real diversity in terms of how that scholarly position or academic position can be operationalized as a job, you know, in a day-to-day sense. So the different roles people can find themselves in. I like how you broke that down, you know, the, the simplicity in your explanation there. I think it's helpful for people that, you know, might get a little bit intimidated by such a definition from Wikipedia or struggle with trying to make sense of what that really means. But, you know, at the end of the day, you know, what, what, what is your job and what you're doing? It's about those ideas and the curiosity towards the world. And what I took away from that, too, is, is seeking clarity, you know, trying to, to, to critically analyze things. Like, are we interpreting things? Are we interpreting the world accurately? You know, yes or no? Probably as simple as that, really, in terms of, you know, broadly speaking, what, what you're doing. Obviously, there's certainly more complexity to, to the, the process that you're involved in and, you know, finding out whether these hypotheses or assumptions are correct or not. But, uh, yeah, I really like that. It, yeah, it is curiosity. And, and, it's, and it's, I think, a desire for exploration and understanding and just knowing more about the world around you. What you said, like, are we really understanding things in a meaningful way? And however we want to interpret that, but is that working for us in terms of how we're able to then take that and use it? Excellent. Well, speaking of clarity, maybe we could add a little bit more here in this next segment, a day in the life segment. And here, I would just love to hear, you know, broadly speaking, perhaps a day, maybe a week, like what are you involved in? What types of duties, responsibilities are, you know, the, the main ones that you're concerned with? So I can start this off with just a really brief explanation of my role. I'm a research stream uh, academic, which means that my job, at least in, in Canada, this tends to be how an academic position is designed. We often have teaching professors whose focus will then be on a scholarship of teaching. I'm a research stream faculty. So my job is literally divided into 40% research, 40% teaching, and 20% service. So one thing I really overlooked and didn't have awareness of was the amount of self-governance that is involved in academic at a post-secondary institution. Like faculty with uh, in collaboration with their incredible admin staff are the folks that run the programs, run the systems. It's very self-governed. So it ends up being a lot more of your time than you would think the service, like being on committees and contributing. But so my a day in my job depends on whether I'm an, on a non-teaching term or a teaching term. So it's three terms a year. I have two teaching terms and then one non-teaching term. So right now on my non-teaching term, it is all strategy about like being like, like attending to my research projects, writing, getting the publications out, getting the findings out from the work that we've done, meeting with research teams, meeting with my community partners discussing how we're going to structure our next grant, the one that we're putting in in the fall. So that's what my life looks like right now on a non-teaching term. It's basically blocks of writing and then meeting with my research teams and talking about where we're at in our research process. For our one project, we're finishing up analysis and we've hammered out frameworks for our first three papers. And then, you know, getting super strategic about this one's going to be written at this time, then this one, then this one, everybody's doing things. But when I'm in a teaching term, teaching takes up a lot of time. Uh, I teach two courses per semester. So, you know, if I'm teaching undergrad, I'm on campus, I'm in a classroom for three hours, you know, engaging with students. Then afterwards, I might have meetings with students. 
And then every term I have service meetings uh, throughout the month. So whether that's grad ed or our nursing council meetings, we have once a month, additional meetings uh, for other things. Some days are death by meeting, but your day can really get derailed though. You might, you know, get a response from a journal. It's like, ah, all right, we're going to accept this pending revisions. And then it completely is going to shift your priorities. You hear back from a journal that publication takes precedence over everything else. So it's like shift, move out of the way, block time for this, like feverishly write up those uh, revisions, get that out the door again, and hopefully you don't have to do another round. So I find what can be really challenging for, for my brain in this job is that because there are the different pieces, you got teaching, research, service, I'll have a plan for things that I've prioritized and I want to get done during the day. It's just there's a lot of emails and then you hold in different directions. And uh, a skill that has been encouraged to me is just really being really clear about setting boundaries, not answering emails during certain portions of the day and just adhering to your priorities. I haven't quite learned that yet. Getting there. It's a tough one. So, so tough one. So the, the day can take on many different forms. For our graduate programs are entirely online. So I'm doing kind of like engaging on message boards and doing like Zoom sessions. And it's a very different, it's asynchronous teaching. Yeah, yeah, sounds like it. Yeah, so it, it can be very fragmented in terms of what my day kind of looks like. I come to my grad course a couple of times throughout the day. I'll check the board in the morning, respond to questions, check the board later, go teach my undergrad class have the meetings, work on a paper. Yeah. Any iteration of these things is pretty much what my day looks like. Okay. Yeah. Fragmented seemed to be the word that would, uh, that, that truly encapsulates all of that. You know, it, it's, it's a theme that comes up time and time again in speaking you know, during this segment in particular with other guests. And it sounds like to me that like oftentimes like these, these things can be quite stressful. You know, hectic is a word I think that you use there. I suppose, though, and this is the, the repeated theme that comes up with a number of guests, is that the exposure to all these different responsibilities, people, you know, situations does sort of add a different element to the work as far as reward. Maybe not in the moment because you're stressed and you're trying to like put it all together and get through it. But as you're going through all these different steps or whatever you want to call them, you are being exposed to new ideas. You're being exposed to, to new challenges. You're you're, you're I don't know, challenging yourself mentally in a number of different ways that ultimately probably are serving you. You might pick up an idea from this meeting or from this individual that can somehow, some way sort of translate into an idea that might lead on to another project or, you know, you know what I mean? Like it all sort of connects up in the end that probably like in reflection is helpful as opposed to someone who's just wearing that one hat. They have this one job, this one responsibility, this one duty. At the end of the day, the level of fulfillment that comes with that could be on a whole different level. It could be on a whole different scale. At least that's something that I continually pick up from guests. But yeah, no doubt, I mean, it sounds like there can be some stressful moments along the way uh, in, in doing all of that. Is, is that accurate for you too, would you say? Or Oh, absolutely. And I mean, it's honestly not as stressful as I potentially have described that. And I think it really depends on the personality of the individual as well. Some days it's overwhelming just based on what might be happening, that you're really focused, you've got a deadline and you need to get the stuff in and then you're getting emails and everything always seems to happen all at once. So in those moments, it can feel really overwhelming. But most of the time, and for, for me personally, as you've identified, 
I love the diversity of the kind of work that I get to do. I know others have said to me, that would drive me to mad. Like I need to be able to focus on the thing that I need to get done without having these other random things coming in and derailing my entire focus and so on and so forth. But I find that they're all things that I really enjoy doing. And like you said, like I had a meeting with community partners yesterday and I left that meeting feeling so inspired because the ideas that were shared, like this is, and I'm such an advocate for community-based research for this reason. These are the knowledge holders. These are the experts. And I have the privilege of engaging with them and learning from them about what do you need and how could we do that? I have a toolkit as a researcher. That's my training. I'm coming in here and sitting at this table as that person. So I I derive a tremendous amount of gratitude from the opportunity to be in class with students, learning with them, the things that they say, the conversations we have. And I remember feeling really emotional one day and saying, if you are the future, then we're going to be okay. And I'm just like, honestly, (laughs) I was so blown away by the respectful approach students were able to engage in while discoursing on very sensitive and potentially inflammatory topics. And that was the nature of the exercise. Can you have a respectful conversation while maintaining very different positions on a very sensitive topic? So I'm constantly deriving inspiration from this work. And I feel I just want to preface everything with the fact that I feel so grateful and privileged that I have had an opportunity to go to school, to have an, to get an education, and then to do work like this, to, to main, you know, be in a position where I can have a job like this. So, yes, I complain sometimes about how stressed I am, but at the end of the day, I... I, uh, I think that's part and parcel. I think that every, every professional has those moments, has those days in particular. You know, I, I guess it's it's moments like these where you can have these sort of intimate conversations where you can, you're able to reflect on it and see the value in some of these, you know, otherwise stressful times or moments, you know, so, yeah. But maybe uh, I was thinking here we could dive a little bit back into your past in this next segment, a pathway segment. And off the top, I certainly introduce listeners to a bit about, you know, what you've been involved with. And I think it's always interesting to, to highlight some of these markers along the way. You know, for one, within this segment, it, it always comes up that people's pathway towards their ultimate career endgame where they end up is never this, this straight linear line. Like there's always jaunts along the way, left hand turns, right hand turns, so on and so forth. And uh, I'd be curious to hear a little bit more about your background. In particular, you've already raised this word of curiosity. We spoke about that, you know, we're examining the definition of a scholar. I'd love to know your level of curiosity towards the world. I would assume, you know, like that was probably there for you early on, which might have led you into academia. But uh, yeah, maybe you could share that with listeners. Yeah, absolutely. I joke around a lot that I am a curious human and I arrived on this planet as a curious human. I was joking around having this conversation with a friend of mine last week about how I had entertained a a great variety of potential uh, professions or occupations or you know ways that I was going to spend my life. And we laughed that I had briefly considered being a volcanologist at one point. She was like, the heck is that? Person who studies volcanoes. I'm fascinated <laughs> by volcanoes. Composite shield. Oh, man, there's so much to learn, so much to know. But I yeah. think what ultimately drove me to science was just a really innate curiosity as to like how things work. Like I always wanted to understand, but like, but why? I think it drove my parents like bananas. But why? But why? 
And I had the good fortune of being in the company of folks that could offer me some insights into that. My dad was really into quantum physics, though. So that was just like taken up a notch. And, you know, probably things that were introduced that I had, I was, couldn't follow it at all. But I think it also inspired an interest in space. And if I was better at math, maybe I would have pursued something in that in that line. But absolutely, I I've just I, I just think the world is such a fascinating place. And there are so many different ways to explore the kinds of things that we come in contact. And I think what um, was really important for me on my, you know, fairly, I guess it's, you know, definitely not a straight line in terms of how I ended up here. It's not surprising. If you would have said to me when I was like 13, that you're going to be an academic, I would have been like, yeah, that makes sense. But it wouldn't have been something I would have considered at the time. But I loved learning. I really like kind of pushing myself to understand things that were difficult for me and perhaps put some pressure on myself that wasn't necessary. But one thing I did want to say was that doing a science degree was so valuable because it shaped and introduced concepts to me, but from a particular perspective. And at that time in my life, I wasn't aware of other ways of knowing, other perspectives and possibilities in, in terms of how we understand knowledge how we position knowledge or how we position reality, that was introduced to me in my graduate training. And that blew my mind. And I was just like, why have I not been exposed to this earlier on? Why is this not somehow integrated into curriculum at at an earlier point? And I understand the complexity inherent to philosophical concepts and philosophy at large, but it was so... I just, I couldn't believe that I had not ever questioned what was presented or what I was taught in my science courses. Like I took it as fact. It was the only way to understand things. And so that was very, just was a watershed moment for me. Sounds like it. Yeah. How I began to understand and look at the world and question things. You can't go back once you have that experience. So that was big. Yeah. Well, it sounds like to me, yeah, like at least initially that curiosity was there. And then along the way and what you're just explaining that that entrance of critical thought and how that can be a useful tool as far as interpreting the world and challenging some of the the viewpoints that are commonly held. And that, as you said, can kind of lead you down a rabbit hole of just absolutely fascinating like work or research or information that you're able to uncover. So I could see how that would like pull you deeper and deeper. And I, I suppose that's you know, I'm making an assumption here, but that's what really just pulled you all the way in to where you've kind of ended up now. Is that? 150%. And my supervisor for my master's and my PhD is such an incredible uh, human being, but academic as well. And learning with her and having that kind of mentorship and being socialized into ideas in that way has profoundly shaped and informed how I look at things, how I ask questions, the sort of things that I want to understand and how I will position things. But that critical theory, critical perspectives, that was another massive moment in terms of my trajectory was having being exposed to these tools and this understanding of unpacking and picking apart and recognizing, you know, Power is quite insidious and it's very ideological in, in the sense that you're not consciously aware of it. I didn't question so many things that are the product of power and how power is operating in our society. You know, even my own like 
reproductive rights. I didn't even think about that until I was in a position where I could recognize how that was a product of processes and constructs of power. And it has been quite a, quite a journey having those tools now and being able to apply those in a way that is meant to be facilitative for Overarchingly, right? Well, yeah, I suppose these things are these this way of interpreting the world. Once you see it, you can't unsee it. And that, yeah, wouldn't like Let's take those glasses yeah. off. We call them the rose colored glasses. If they're <laughs> off, right. never coming back on. <laughs> well, this might be a nice point to, to dive into this next segment here in a QA discovery. And again, I've lightly introduced off the top, you know, some of the things that you're involved with as far as your research, uh, namely, you really dig into issues related to health equity and examination of social structures that lead to poor outcomes for those from disadvantaged backgrounds. Now, maybe you could break that down for us in simpler terms, like what exactly you are involved with. Absolutely. So health equity, I just always use it as a broad term because it positions me as somebody who's really interested in looking at the implications. Uh, of our social environments and how our social environments inherent to things like, you know, political, historical, social dynamics, how that influences our day-to-day lives and our interactions, our access to things, everything. Because we can't look at how somebody is feeling if we don't consider the context within which they live. We know this is all social determinants, right? So socioeconomic status, gender, if you look at the major ones, right? The implications those things have on how somebody feels. Equity is is a term that situates differences, not as simply existing. So we would say disparities if we were just like, oh, so this group of people seem to have this health issue. That's just random. But actually, we can look at that overrepresentation of a particular health issue as a product of structural forces that are positioning this group with they're really positioning them in terms of like contributing to disadvantage. So I do a lot of work currently with the 2S LGBTQ plus groups and really looking at positioning discrimination as an interpersonal experience. So things like bullying, name calling, physical violence, but also structural like heteronormativity. So really kind of looking at how people are excluded from civil liberty by virtue of who they are. That's a structural level discrimination. Uh, and the sort of the interconnections of those things and the implications that that has for folks that you ascribe to cisgender or, you know, the heterosexual assumptions. Mm. So that's the work that I've really been positioned in more recently, but I've done other, other health equity informed things, but mm-hmm. my work most recently and currently is situated with this particular, these particular groups of folks. And I also understand too, uh, again, you know, mentioned this off the top that the work that you do, you're, you're not tucked away behind those ivy walls of academia. You know, I think there's this assumption, incorrect, of course, that, you know, a lot of academics are and they're not really out there, you know, necessarily in engaging with the public. But you've mentioned several times community outreach and, and some of the groups that you're involved with and on various committees and whatnot. You've had direct experiences. You've been in the field, Vancouver's downtown east side. You're out there, you're speaking to people. And maybe you could speak to that because I could imagine that work, you know, one being meaningful because you're finding information that's hopefully going to lead to better outcomes. Maybe it's through policy development or whatnot. But also, too, you know, the question I'm aiming at right now is that 
in doing all of this work, again, as meaningful as it is, I'd also imagine like there being a human toll, like seeing what you're seeing and some of the difficulties of, of that, you know, that people might not necessarily associate with or like a stress or a pressure that someone within academia would have. Maybe you can speak to that point as well. Yeah, absolutely. And again, it just reflects the diversity of this role and the kind of work that you can do based on your discipline and your focus. So yeah, the folks in, you know, the hard sciences are doing different kind of work. They're situated in a lab. They might be studying the impact of, you know, like particular antibiotic on, you know, a bacteria and looking at things. But I still argue that regardless of what work you're doing, you're not tucked away because everything is connected. Everything has an impact on lives, on how we interact, on how we feel. So I think this, you know, notion or, you know, I would say I, I love her like incorrectly, of course, but I, I agree with that. Even folks that are really doing very strictly theoretical work, that's still informed by questions. They've been based on interaction and conversations with others and a lot of deliberate, like it's never in isolation. It's never silent. I agree. Yeah, I agree. But absolutely participatory action research, which is the direction that I'm increasingly moving with my work, because I fully believe that for the kind of work that I'm doing, and I would I would argue even for everything, understanding the needs of the, the folks, the people that the work is meant to benefit, that needs to be driving and informing the entire process. Or how is it going to be meaningful? That you can really derive meaning through working closely with communities around what the needs are and then how we can work together to meet those needs in ways that are actually going to be effective. But to get funding for the kind of work that I do, it's all about knowledge translation now. So what is this going to do for people? Like, how is this going to help people feel better? So it's always about improving health outcomes and being very deliberate about in what ways. Like, what are the outputs here? And I think that's really important because we do want to see that. But there are always outputs, regardless of how, you know, participatory your work is. Everything that folks are doing around knowledge development is important and has meaning and is, you know, derived from engaging with others. It's never just happening in um, ivory tower, locked away from you know, interaction with humans. But uh, certainly... The kind of work that I do, I, I did a recent project where I talked with men who are self-identified as gay and are age 50 plus who had lived through that pre-heart period of HIV AIDS. So the pre-highly active antiretroviral therapy period where there's a you know certain groups that were really disadvantaged and you know the infection is really steeped in stigma and it's not to diminish you know the fact that there were other groups of people too that were really, really overrepresented in terms of disadvantaged during that time, but gay men were really conflated with the infection. And there was a tremendous amount of just derogatory media discourse, uh, really horrible, horrible things, and no organized public health response uh, or support of any kind. So there was a lot of uh, suffering and, and death. And I talked to people about their experiences during that time to understand how going through something like this is a collective trauma can potentially influence your current perspectives on quality of life, like what that means for how you value the things in your life and the sort of implications that has for your wellness. So talking to people about that was, you know, you feel inappropriate 
being so saddened by it because I'm positioned, you know, my social location is such that I have no frame of reference what that would be like. And it was just so, I'm so grateful that people were willing to have those conversations with me. But I think my work as an outreach nurse and learning how to generate safe spaces and have uh, really respectful approaches to conversation. Mm -hmm. I was really facilitative to then building, uh, you know, approaches to qualitative interviewing around very sensitive subject matters. Yeah, I know it's yeah. People in a, a respectful way. Yeah, and like compassion, empathy, obviously being a, a large part of that. I mean, we assume it would have to be right, making sure that you are considering those elements, and and obviously, like like you said, doing it in a sensitive manner that's going to be respectful as well of what they've been through and what they're trying to potentially communicate to you. Yeah. This gendered, straight, middle-class white woman who has no frame of reference for what this experience has meant for this particular group of people. But uh, it was researchers, Mike, I, I had a committee member who was so articulately explained, we don't often maintain membership in the community we work with. So it's it's okay, but we have to have tools and approaches then to do this work appropriately. Yeah, yeah. I suppose too, you know, some self-care involved as well, you know, and, and like I said, going through this and probably having several conversations with individuals who have gone through some difficult times. Again, there, there is a human toll, like we're all humans and those types of stories that you're encountering or you're hearing probably like they, they stick with you and how can they not, you know, at the end of the day too. And I imagine that could be a, a challenging aspect that again, might be overlooked in, in the work that somebody like yourself is doing. All right. Well, I do have this other question here too, Ingrid, and you've mentioned this point already, funding. And of course, funding, you know, ostensibly does kind of track back to politics and, you know, how people are interpreting a particular subject or issue or what views the public generally has. And that's going to kind of come back around to, to funding, whether or not you're able to get cash essentially to get this research off the ground. And I can imagine that being a fairly frustrating world to be living within at times, but uh, maybe you could speak to that point and shed some uh, further insights on that. Sure. Funding is uh, a central component of our lives. And part of it is about also where you are situated. So I'm at the University of Victoria. It's a smaller institution. We have fewer resources. We're not a tier one research facility. So there's some politics around, you know, you look at the universities that get the big funds and it's kind of like the teams that always win the World Cup, you know, like these are the really well-resourced teams that have lots, but it's okay because being at an an institution like UVic, I'm really grateful because there's a lot of other things that are going on and it also depends on the kind of career that you want. So I am quite passionate about doing the participatory action research. And what I really appreciate is that UVic has really increasingly adopted a perspective that recognizes that PAR takes longer. And there's implications to that kind of work that have, you know, an influence on your outputs and the kinds of things you're able to produce because of what has to go into that, the relationship building and, and all the things. So I know diversity seems to be like the the catchphrase that I that I keep referring to in this talk, but it, it's again it's a diversity in terms of where you're situated, and then just being really savvy about recognizing the work that you do. So I have a kind of fairly niche work that I'm doing, and there are organizations that are more apt to fund that kind of work. So those are 
organizations that you look to for that money. There are different funders. I do very sociologically informed work. So as a health professional, we typically aim to get funding from CIHR. That's the Canadian Institute of Health Research. That's the big health funding uh, government. That's our tri-council, right? There's SHRC, NSERC, and uh, CIHR. But I I often I get funding through SHRC because that's the Social Sciences Humanities Research Council because with sociologically informed work, a lot of nurses will uh, shift towards SHRC funding because it's appropriate and the uh, the chances of getting funded are, are much better. It's much more competitive with CIHR. So you, you kind of strategize, you get mentored, people kind of, you know, throw you little bits and pieces and like, hey, there's this funder and oh, there's this, you know, community organization. They've got some competitions. You might want to look at that. So there's lots of opportunities. It's true. I keep hearing that funding is harder and harder to get. There's less and less money everywhere. But I also find that there's more creative ways to be funded nowadays. And there's more organizations that are looking to fund different things. And it's just about the kind of work that you want to do and how big it needs to be and building up, starting with something small and then carving another piece out of that and then getting that funded through somebody else and then slowly building and strategizing. And that's the work of so much of this work is just is mentorship. Honestly, as a new person, having good mentors that can offer you those insights and ideas, that's integral. I'm so fortunate. I have these amazing mentors that have been so instrumental in guiding how I've gone about applying for funding. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And that's one that as you're explaining that right there, I was just thinking that without that, it would be a nightmare trying to like navigate, you know, the, the, the professional demands of what you're involved in getting pulled in this direction, getting pulled in that direction and having this responsibility being, you know, in charge of this. And without having that sort of guidance, you know, just what you're explaining there on the funding side, like that would be almost like a full-time role for somebody who who is starting from zero and didn't have any idea of how to go about this when they're first starting out within their career. You would have to have that guidance to be like, well, here's an organization that we've worked with in the past. This is the way to approach them. And then yeah. also, you know, within this frame of mind, you could also potentially approach this organization, you know, B, C, D, E, you know what I mean? Like you go after them as well. And yeah, yeah. Otherwise, it would just be an extreme, extreme challenge, I would assume. But uh, it sounds like at least in your case that you've been fortunate to, to have people that are like, well, try this, do this, you know, that, that, that help you along and uh, get you to where you need to be. 100%, which is means everything, means everything. The work is very autonomous. You don't have a boss. Nobody's telling you, you need to do this, this, and this. Like you have a unit standard, a collective agreement. You got to tick boxes to keep your job. How to do that is not always entirely clear. So having guidance, really, really important. Well, I do have one last question within the segment here. And, you know, it's tracking back to this idea of being so deeply engaged within your work. And invariably, you're going to probably have some fairly strong opinions on particular subject matter. Now, the question here is when some of those opinions that you hold are very different than, say, what's within the public sphere, what the, the general public is feeling about a particular issue or topic. And, you know, what is that like? How do you reconcile those differences and how do you hold it in, I suppose, at times, even having conversations in your personal life with, with friends or colleagues or people who are outside of the work that, you know, that you're doing? How is that aspect of it all? 
Oh, it is maddening. It is hair pulling. I will tell you the past year of my life has been a process of reinventing myself and recognizing it's not worth the energy, first of all, because I get so passionate about things and I just get so riled up and my husband will just be like, all right, you need to just simmer down, Ingrid. Like this is not, it's not worth it. But I think there are certain things that have such great implications. It's been a really, been a really disheartening year with things like Roe versus Wade, uh, vaccination conversations with a lot of accusatory comments around vaccination and governance and looking at what's happening in other parts of the world where there are true autocracies and people are really suffering and dying. A lot of, a lot of things. And so. I have the good fortune of having wonderful friends and colleagues where we can have those conversations in safe spaces. You can get some of that out. And I also run for sanity. That really, really helps me. But that's actually been something that I've really had to work on because it's a lot of, there's finite, I love the Barack Obama, finite energy. So you need to be really mindful about where that energy is being expanded. And me being angry, I actually have talked to students about this, me being like really angry about stuff all the time is not facilitative. If I can channel that and like write a grant and get funded and do some great work with it, awesome. But that's typically- Not how it works usually. Uh, not, not really. So there's different creative outlets that are very helpful to navigate that. And just being very like mindful about where I am positioned and why I am positioned. And one of the strategies that a colleague of mine who has a very uh, specific role in policy was really, really valuable. Her approach is when you are looking at wanting to change something, you first need to talk to the people who are in like stark opposition to you, because then you get a sense of what you're up against. Then you find your supports. I've always been doing it the flip way. I'm always chatting with people that are like, you know, on my team and share my perspective. But it is really important to understand the opposite view or the slightly different view. And then also deriving some appreciation from that and realizing that thinking in binaries is not helpful. You know, there's a continuum and there's lots of different reasons why people hold beliefs and, and value understanding those perspectives if they're not just fueled by pure hate or something like that. Right, right. But I think just me being more open, listening, not talking as much has been really, really helpful and has brought it down a notch in a time where it's it, it has been a disheartening time. There's been a lot of really challenging processes in our society. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, considering that when I was thinking of this question, I mean, it, it is so adversarial with issues. I mean, people dig into their positions and oftentimes they're, they're not willing to move on a lot of them and they want everybody to know it. At least that's a perception, you know, within the media or on places like social media, no less. So the word that kind of popped into mind when you were describing that is managing. Like you, you're, you're consciously having to manage those emotions and and pull back and okay why are people thinking this way trying to to look at it from a different perspective and control your emotions and yeah a a degree of management comes in i I suppose we would have to otherwise your sanity would be shot and as you mentioned it's not going to help facilitate it's not going to move your research forward in a productive manner so all right. Well, I do want to shift into this middle segment here, a water cooler story. And here I just ask, you know, guests to indulge listeners with the story related to their work. So I'm really curious to hear what you have for us today, Ingrid. 
So what I wanted to share today was an experience that I had. We've been going through some challenging times at the school, and I'd say at the university, generally speaking, because of COVID, uh, there, there are financial issues. And there are a lot of budget cuts. There are a lot of changes that are being imposed on schools that are really hard for schools to absorb and to navigate. We're very, we're very short uh, admin and faculty wise. It's really difficult for us to continue doing our jobs and meet those expectations of not just our, you know, from an educational sense and a program sense, but we also have to respond to the Ministry of Health. Ministry of Health wants and expects a certain number of health professionals to be produced in a finite period of time. So there are different pressures for different disciplines, right? It's been a tough time. And I think in amidst those times, you also start to have a bit of a crisis of confidence and you start to question your own ability to measure up. Am I doing enough? Am I doing this? And I get like, I get really emotional about this and I'm sorry, that's just who I am. But I have a colleague who was uh, is really, really open. And we had this wonderful conversation, myself and another colleague. And this colleague, we had a really open and frank conversation about colonizing processes and the impact of colonizing sort of the the repercussions of colonization in terms of how we think and live. And And as an Indigenous person, she had shared her experiences with us as somebody who had been impacted by residential schooling and somebody who, despite all of those challenges, is now positioned as an academic and is doing this work within the confines of a colonized system. And it was so, and I say this very mindfully, I am positioned as a white settler, but listening to somebody who was in this position and had these experiences and was willing to share that with us, just Mm. stripped away all of these things to sort of recognize what is really important. And it inspired me to want to do things more deliberately from a decolon, like we're all working towards decolonizing and different ways to incorporate decolonizing processes into our work, into our curriculum, how we do our research. But I really value so much the critical questions that are raised by decolonizing approaches to just rip apart these imposed expectations of productivity and these very hollow, empty productivity, competition, status, money, all of this stuff that is wrapped up in every industry. But if we really want to be adherent and if we really want to honor decolonizing and decolonization within the institution, which, you know, Evic is really committed to this, then listening to the stories and perspectives of our Indigenous colleagues and the things that they have to say was so grounding for me to just put me in a place of like, oh my gosh, like I'm worried about this stuff. Like the work to have meaning needs to be informed from a different lens. And I think in an environment like academia where everything's about, there's a lot of performative stuff going on. It was really refreshing to be in a space where somebody was just authentic, real. And that was okay. It was okay to be emotional. It wasn't a deficit to show the fact that you were touched by a story, that 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 didn't suggest that you were weak or, you know, we're not able to maintain objectivity or something like this. I think working against these sort of hyper-masculine notions and patriarchal colonizing sort of. So 
it, it was just, again, a, a really impactful experience. Mm. Reorient me a little bit and, you know what, what do I really want to do here? And it really matters. And how how might we be doing this in a more meaningful way without worrying about my, you know, uh, trajectory and my this and my that. It shouldn't be about me and what I'm doing. It should be about the contribution. So it was a very meaningful conversation that uh, I, I was just really grateful that somebody was willing to share those kinds of things with us uh, being positioned very differently given her experiences. So, yeah, yeah, no, I want well, to thank you one for sharing that. And two, you know, that, that word of meaningfulness, you know, you raised it a couple of times there and I certainly picked up on that. And how could that not be, you know, hearing those perspectives and oftentimes too, I mean, you're right. Like getting to the, the point of that story or some of the points of that story of like, we within society right now, we always track back to the elements of, you know, what we've defined as the right way, as I finger quote it, these, these elements of competition and, and some of the things that you've raised already, you know, and productivity and efficiency and all these things. But by only adhering to those values, we're missing out on so much more, you know, so much more. You know, I've had guests on this program, we've spoken about climate change in particular. And as far as like the indigenous you know, populations and groups and how they manage their relationships with nature, how they were handling things and how truthfully, probably things were a lot better, like the way they interpreted the world rather than coming in and how, you know, we as settlers have come in and said, no, the world is here for our needs and our needs only. There was no symbiotic sort of relationship there. So my point here is that like by having these types of conversations, you're exposing yourself to one new perspectives, new ideas that, you know, again, lead back to this notion of fulfillment and, and more meaning within your life that, you know, we're starting to blur the lines of the professional side of what you're involved with, but also just like life and living. And how can that not be valuable? How can that not be a valuable experience? So yeah, one, again, I really appreciate that story. And I think it's just a nice reminder for us as well to, for all of us, you know, whatever profession, whatever we're doing to once in a while, you know, take those glasses off and, you know, or put on a different set of goggles, you know, and interpret the world a little bit differently. And there's so much more to be gained and learned by doing so. Well, I do have this last segment here, a crystal ball segment. Maybe we can transition into that. And as the name implies, we're usually looking forward to the future trends, predictions, so on and so forth. And usually within the segment, we're tracking towards technology, the impact that's having on the profession, on the work. And as of late, of course, me and the big one is AI. Can't usually get through a segment without that coming up now. But I was kind of thinking about within your world and how AI is, you know, penetrating that. I mean, there's several different ways, but one of them, I, I was thinking like one of the more positive sort of outcomes, potentially, potentially, and I don't know if this is accurate, AI could be used as this tool. Like it is a tool, right? I mean, for just scraping large amounts of data and maybe from within that, you're, you're picking up on trends, trends that maybe you want to investigate further. But uh, I'd love to hear your insights of whether or not maybe that is something that's being used for, but more specifically, what you're seeing within your world as it relates to tech and perhaps AI. In our discipline, there's a lot of conjecture around simulation, which is a, a teaching approach that we've integrated increasingly over the years, particularly during COVID, where you don't necessarily, typically you'd have students that are learning uh, like actual nursing skills in a clinical environment. They're working in hospitals, in clinical settings where they're doing the work. But now we, we have this option to introduce what's called sim or simulation, where literally mannequins, uh, different computer programs that can offer a learning experience in the absence of an actual human being. 
So as you can imagine, there's a lot of wonderful opportunity that arises from this, but then there's a lot of concern about what are the implications when this isn't an actual human being? Like what, what are the implications for engagement, right? For relational engagement, with such a, which is such a central component of the work that we do. So I think with everything and the AI piece, the one that everybody is talking about, which I was like late to the party for, is the chat GPT and the implications that that has now. Because as my one colleague says, well, you know, like every student used that to write their paper for this, right? And I'm like, what? I don't even know what this is. Like, oh, the papers were really good. Maybe that's why. But I think there's, with everything, it's always careful evaluation of things to be gained but we always have to be cautious about like, what are the repercussions though? And how we figure out how to balance that is the challenge. And I don't have the answer for that, but I think example simulation is essential. This will make learning more accessible to lots of people who want to do this job. And God bless them because we need people to do this job. Because in the past three years, the job really, really sucked. And we need to like encourage folks to continue maintaining that curiosity and that desire to do this work. And oftentimes we have like learning settings that are in remote locations. They don't have access to big urban hospitals where there's lots of uh, complex cases that students can be exposed to. So things like SIM have real relevance for more rural communities that have schools and, and all sorts of things. So there's wonderful opportunity, but yeah, then we got to temper that with, okay, so there are implications though. Like what, what is the impact on, on learning? Are you going to be as skilled if you're learning through a computer simulation versus on an, on a human being? Is it good enough or close enough if you don't have access to a hospital at all? Like there's there's a lot of variables to be kind of inputted into this, you know, this situation when we're considering what that all means. No doubt, no doubt. A lot of question marks, quite frankly. And I think that's exactly where we're at, you know, across industries, across realms such as academia. How does something like AI truly impact us and you're right like nobody has the answers right now we're trying to figure that out you know the ethics the you know, like the approaches to it all you know what is right how far can we push it should we be pushing down this path with ai you know and, and i think it's right now it's an interesting time to, to try to sort out this mess in a way you know how can we truly use this technology to its you know full capacity with still having like notions of empathy and compassion and things built into the models that were you know utilizing it with so interesting times no doubt yeah i must say we've covered a lot of ground in this conversation and uh yeah i really enjoyed it and i think this might be a nice point to to draw things to a close but again i can't thank you enough for all of your insights i think you've painted this really nice picture of your world and your research and what you're involved with this can be really helpful to a lot of people that are potentially considering you know work such as what you're doing, or more broadly speaking, within academia as a whole. So yeah, thanks so much, Ingrid. It's been a great talk. Well, thank you for having me. It's quite a luxury to just get to talk about what I do. So thank you for the opportunity. Well, for those interested in learning a little bit more about Ingrid, you can check her out at the University of Victoria. And beyond that, I mean, if you liked today's episode, please be sure to share and tell a friend about it. It helps a ton. You can also rate, review, and subscribe wherever you access your podcasts. And as I mentioned off the top, this is the big ask. I would love it. I would absolutely love it. If you could head on over to YouTube, search for lifeaza dot dot, find the channel, and like or subscribe. I mean, that is the best way to really show support and get this content in front of more people. 
Now, finally, don't forget to join us on the next episode of Life As A, where we'll continue to explore and unearth the details of professions and the people behind them. I'm Christopher Schoenwald, your host, and until next time, stay curious about life and living.